Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 365. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 365 you're listening to. My guest today is producer, engineer, and co-owner of the Bridge Sound and Stage Studio in the greater Boston area. I'm talking about Alex Allenson, who is a referral from our good friend and former WCA guest, Owen Curtin. And actually, Owen emailed me about Alex many, many moons ago. In fact, I'm embarrassed to say he actually emailed me, I think, two years ago. And I truly dropped the ball on getting him on the show until recently because he bought something from me, a piece of gear that I was selling on Reverb.com, believe it or not. And he happened to mention, he said, oh, I'm a friend of Owen's. He may have mentioned uh, me coming on the show. And sure enough, I went into my inbox, dug around, and of course, there it was. There was the email. Totally dropped the ball. Anyhow, (laughs) happy he's here today. I really think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Alex Allenson, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about end-of-the-year downtime. I don't know about you, but typically for me, uh, December, which is the month I'm recording this, is the month where things start to slow down. And I am presented with a fair amount of downtime that I like to take advantage of and get some things accomplished. What's about to follow is a a list of some of those things as suggestions, and uh, hopefully it can be useful to you. So downtime, what can we accomplish? Well, you can get a lot of stuff done that you didn't really make time for or have the time for in the rest of the year. One of the things I do throughout the year is I get things in the mail, documents, uh, you accumulate receipts, I throw those into a box. At the end of the year, what I like to do is digitize those documents so that I have access to them, I know where they are, I can organize them, and then I can shred the physical copies. Uh, It's easier to find it in a digitized form. It's easier to email receipts to those that need it, such as accountants. It's easier to find receipts and serial numbers if they're organized in a computer in some capacity. You know, you can obviously digitize stuff, put it in a folder in Dropbox and not worry about it. It frees up that space. It gives me peace of mind that I have access to those documents, and I don't have to worry about storing those documents. Second, one of the things that I have talked about numerous times on the show is going through and evaluating the gear that you have that you're using and the gear you have that you're not using. And of course, putting the things up for sale that you are not using. Some of these things I like to give away to friends because I just don't want to go through the hassle of selling it and I'm not too worried about, you know, the cash involved. If we're talking about something that's, you know, fairly pricey, yeah, I'm going to sell that so I can turn that into a different piece of gear that I may or may not need. So this is a great time to evaluate that and it could be even, you know, the little knickknacks. Maybe you have a ginormous box of audio adapters or cables and you realize, when's the last time I used any of this? this is a great time to do that. Go through the stuff, organize it. Uh, One of my favorite things to buy are these clear shoe boxes that they sell, I think at the container store in the United States. I don't know if they have an equivalent in in the rest of the world, 
But the container store sells shoe boxes that are kind of, you know, see-through. And I put stuff in there. I have labels. I get super OCD and I put those on a shelf. And it's great because when I need the stuff that I need, I know where it is. And I limit it to the things that I'm using. I try not to keep too many of those once in a lifetime adapters around because those situations rarely present themselves. And I just don't like to hold on to too much. Go through your gear, go through all your cables, make sure that you have what you need and get rid of the stuff you don't. And on that topic, let's talk about computers for a sec. You may be accumulating old computers that you really don't need anymore and that you haven't used in years. Maybe there's a tower in the corner that's been sitting there for what, five, six years, and maybe it's got old Pro Tools, an old Pro Tools setup on it, or maybe it's an old laptop that, you know, just you haven't done anything with in a couple of years. This might be the opportunity to wipe those machines, strip out all of your personal stuff and your business stuff, and donate those machines. Yes, you could sell them, especially if we're talking about Macs. They hold their value to some degree. But you know what? If you got an old laptop that is maybe not so great for audio anymore, but it's pretty good for doing homework, there's a lot of people out there in need of computers that could really use a hand in getting a gifted computer to them. So, you know, consider searching someone out that you could give a computer to through some some connections, I don't know, through social media connections or whatever. But getting rid of all the old computers in your life, also a good thing. Many of these things that I mentioned, a lot of you are not going to be able to take advantage of because you, you may be traveling. You know, let's take, for example, let's say you're going to be flying across the country to go to your in-law's house for the holidays, right? So you may find yourself in these situations where you're on airplanes or you're just uh, at your in-law's house and you're chilling out, but nothing's really going on. This might be a great opportunity to sit and start to make some lists, lists of goals of things you want to accomplish in the next year. Whatever those goals may be, clients you want to work with, gear you want to buy, uh, changes you want to make to your studio, in general, just lists of goals, right? Now, the other thing too that I like to do at the end of the year is kind of do a debrief of yourself and think what went right during the year, what went wrong during the year, and then figure out how to make the next year a better year for yourself based on that information. So you're doing lists of goals, you're doing a, a bit of a debrief of, of, the, of the prior year, of the good and the bad, and figuring out how to change the outcome of the next year. Do it any way you want, but that's just a general set of guidelines to think about. So that's it. Downtime. Think about how to take advantage of that downtime. I know the temptation is to sit on the couch and, you know, watch a lot of shows, drink a few beers, or drink a ton of coffee, whatever. If you can take advantage of that downtime and get some of this other stuff done, then I think you'll find that you'll be a little more organized for next year. You get a little jolt of energy by doing some of this stuff and feeling good that you got some of this stuff done. So that's it. No matter what you decide to do, I wish you luck. And no matter what you choose, I hope that the end of the year works out great for you as well as the next year. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. 
easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might've met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might've heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Alex Allenson here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Let's start with right now. You're talking to us from your studio. Is it the bridge or is it... We call it the bridge. The full name is the bridge sound and stage because we do have a stage area. And what it was is the building was originally a dog food warehouse when it was built. And the stage was the load-in dock. Mm. So it's like this big area. And obviously... We're not a venue. We don't have like ticket sale shows here, especially now with the uh, current state of the pandemic. But it operates as a really good way to use our very big live room in two different ways. So like the floor is much more big and open, but the stage is obviously closer to the ceiling and it gives us a little flexibility as far as like having a big room sounding in two different ways. But there's a big stage. That's why it's called the Bridge Sounding Stage. Excellent. And how many square feet is it approximately? Oh, God, I don't know off the top of my head, but it's uh, very, very big. Very, it's on very our website big. somewhere. <laughs> and it's located in Boston. North Cambridge. North Cambridge. So just outside of Boston. So not too far away from Harvard, if you're using that as kind of a landmark. And how long have you been in that building? So 
The bridge itself moved in in 2008. I joined on as an intern in 2011, and I showed up just like anyone else who was out of audio school, just looking to uh, coil cables, clean toilets, get coffees, hopefully make some connections, learn a few things in a professional environment. And the place just kind of stuck with me. Owen and uh, Janusz Fulop, who's the other owner of the studio, saw something in me, fostered it, and uh, gave me opportunities and started off small. And then one thing led to another. A few years later, I ended up being one of their full-time engineers, ended up being the studio manager. And in 2019, Owen decided he wanted to take a, a big step back from the studio itself and asked me to become a partner in the studio, basically buy out a portion of his stake in the business. And I have been an owner of the studio since 2019. Wow. So 10-year journey being here personally, but the studio itself has been here for about 12. Let me ask you, what do you think it was that Owen saw in you? I'm very driven. I really wanted to make this work. This has been my dream, being an engineer and producer since I was a kid in high school recording bands in my parents' basement. At some point, like most folks in our industry, I was a musician first and I started tinkering in a recording studio and then I just, something clicked in me that I liked recording, mixing, producing more than I did actually performing and writing music. And I just kind of went with it. It was a crooked path getting to where I was. Right out of high school, I went to a community college, did radio and broadcast stuff. It was like communication-based audio, and mm -hmm. it really didn't stick with me because it wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to record bands, and I was a little aimless on how to like get a better education and like get into the scene more. And so because I didn't really take to it, after about two semesters, I took a step back from school. I wasn't doing very well with it. And one of my other passions was culinary. I was a chef for a very long time, and I decided I have a really good restaurant job. I'm really good at this. I'm just going to do culinary. I'm going to give up recording music and I'm just going to pursue a culinary career. And after, say, about 22 years old, I um, was very unsatisfied with the trajectory of my life. I really loved cooking. I didn't like the restaurant environment. Some of my peers were much older than I was and I saw what the industry could do to you, the restaurant industry and mm -hmm. where I was headed. And I didn't want to be 30, 40, standing in a hot kitchen late nights, doing something that I wasn't passionate about. So I decided to jump back into school. I found a small program called the Center for Digital Imaging Arts. It was put on by Boston University. I don't think that it's around anymore, unfortunately, but I wanted to find something that would basically get me out of the state I was living in, drop me in a new environment, get my hands dirty immediately, and then see if I could make something work. And that's exactly what it did. It was in out. It was only a year and a half certificate program. And it forced me to really kind of just hit the ground running. And this is a long winded way to get back to what Owen Curtin saw in me. I think that he saw that I was very driven not to get back in the restaurant. And I was willing to do anything I possibly could to make this work. I was long hours, small sessions, sessions that people didn't want to do. Not only did I want to do them, I really wanted to do them well because I saw that it may not be something that I want to do. Like in the moment, the session work wasn't this really awesome rock band or it wasn't like this really great singer, but I wanted to make it work so that I could learn something, get something from it. And I saw the big picture and just working as hard as I could to get where I wanted to go. And I think that that's what they wanted to foster. They saw that not only did they like me and they wanted me around, but they saw that it was mutually beneficial for their business. They needed someone to help them take these sessions and do this work, and they knew that would represent them well. So let's talk about the cooking element for a minute. 
Do you find there's a lot of parallels between the two worlds? So many parallels. So the first and obvious one is nights and weekends are just gone. (laughs) Those are like the big times that I work. And the customer service aspect of it is very real too, because you may uh, make a meal and you think it's perfect and you think that it's absolutely the way it should be. It's what you envisioned and it tastes the way it should. And you send it out to the guest and the guest doesn't like it and they send it back and you have to change it even though you think it's perfect. That can happen with a mix. You may send off a mix and you think it's perfect and it's exactly what you envisioned, but the client doesn't like it and they had a different vision and they wanted to alter it. And you have to make sure that you make it to the taste of whomever you're working with so that they enjoy their meal or mix in this case. A little more difficult in that case because When you're listening to a mix, you can listen to an alternative version of a mix and Mm -hmm. say, okay, I agree or disagree with that. Mm -hmm. With a meal, it's not like you're going to go, well, let me try that. Let me taste it. Let me me, uh, take a little nibble off your plate there and send it before I send it back. That is true. And you don't, you can't send out different versions of a steak either. It's like, here's a steak, (laughs) it's medium. Here's a steak that's medium rare. (laughs) (laughs) That would be great. Mm -hmm. Just try all the different temperatures real quick and then tell me which one do you prefer. Yeah, here's 120, here's 140. I'm kind of a 130 guy, so yeah, yeah, that'd be funny. No, it could definitely get complicated for sure. What about the industry of cooking? What was going to happen to you that you were concerned with? The lifestyle. I saw there was a lot of drugs, a lot of alcohol, and I certainly enjoyed my younger years, but I would work alongside folks who never grew out of that phase. Mm. And I wanted to do something more in my life. Cooking was just always easy for me. That was an easy answer. It's something that's just always made sense. And I didn't feel challenged by it. It was just something that I could just do and make good money doing it. And I didn't feel like I was intellectually or creatively challenged. And I felt like I had given up at such a young age. Like I remember the exact moment being 22 years old and waking up for a restaurant shift and staring at the ceiling and thinking, I hate my life. I'm 22 years old and I do not like anything about my life. And there's something wrong with that. And it wasn't too long after that, that I found myself in Boston trying to do something different. It was just like, I I didn't want to feel that way at all. I just needed to really give this a fair shot. I didn't give it a fair shot. And then if it didn't work out, I could always get another restaurant job, you know? There was always yeah. like that failsafe, but I needed to give it a fair shake. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to live with myself. You said something very interesting, too. You said, I grew out of that, meaning the drug and the alcohol use, where some people just like, they kind of remain in that world. Mm-hmm. Did you have some kind of event in your life that caused a mindset shift for you to say, I don't want to do that anymore? It was several different things. There was the realization, like I said, of peers that I would work with. I'd look at them and be like, oh man, I don't want to turn out like this person. I don't want to be stuck doing this thing. There was a breakup. (laughs) There was a very important person in my life who uh, meant a lot to me and she wasn't well either. We weren't good for each other. She moved somewhere else and she was kind of like my band-aid. I know it's kind of funny to say that, I still am fond of this person. I still talk to her regularly. We're still very good friends. But once that evaporated, there was just nothing in my life that I really liked. And so I needed to figure out how can I make myself a happy person? What is going to make me happy? What is going to challenge me? What is going to be the thing that I want to do? And it was it always been music, recording music. That was like my favorite thing to do growing up. And 
I was at that point very driven to try to make it work. I never wanted to look back. I never wanted to go back. You know, Owen's call of you being driven or your assessment of that being the thing that he saw. It's interesting because, you know, some people, they coast. They Mm -hmm. find a few things that are working and they coast. They become Mm -hmm. complacent. It sounds like you were constantly trying to break free of something and you eventually found the path that works best for you. Where do you think that that comes from? Is that an influence of your parents or siblings or? Oh, certainly. My parents were and are still incredibly supportive of me and the things that I love and want to do. Even going back to when I was a kid and playing in thrash metal bands, they used to literally come out to the Webster Theater in Hartford, Connecticut and come see me play in these like gross clubs and really foster the things that I love, even though they weren't characteristically the things that they wanted to do. And my father has a really, really similar aesthetic to him where he was driven when he was a kid to get to a certain thing. He went in a different direction. He was a business person. He worked for uh, United Technologies for a very long time, but he had a goal and he set himself out and he drove himself to do it. So that's definitely traits that I feel I picked up from my parents for sure. They were very supportive of me getting out and doing something different with my life. They never really wanted to like push me Mm -hmm. out of the things I was doing, but they always knew that they wanted me to do more and figure out what made me happy. And it wasn't like they said, oh, I wanted to go be a lawyer or a doctor or a brain surgeon. They just wanted me to be stimulated, happy, challenged, and feel fulfilled. And they've been really helpful throughout that whole process. It's been amazing. Yeah. that When you come to that realization of, I don't want to spend my life taking drugs and drinking heavily can be quite an awakening for some. And it's, it's a much, it plays a huge role. You know, those that are mm-hmm. alcoholics, et cetera. For me, I, I had a, a moment of clarity when I was on tour and I woke up one morning and I could smell the alcohol on my skin mm. from the drinking the night before. And yep. I'd said to myself right then and there, I was like, I cannot spend the rest of my life doing this shit. Yeah. It really takes a toll on you. It does. Really does. So your parents' influence, that's obviously, and their support is a major thing. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned goals. When it comes to goals in, in how you're running your life now as an audio professional, do you consciously have a set of goals? Do you write things down? What's going on in the mind of Alex? I have like long-term goals about what I want to do with the the business and the building and how we want to grow things technically and aesthetically. Like running the Bridgetown Estates, we always like to think about, okay, what's the next thing that we can do to make this building better? Even if we can't necessarily afford it at that time being, like we're obviously always thinking about how we can make this place better. But personally, I don't really have goals as far as like, do I want to make this kind of record? Do I want to do this thing? I'm just always trying to find ways to tweak my workflow do different things. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I watch a lot of mixed tutorial videos. I definitely feel like I've found my voice as a mixer and producer and an engineer, but I'm always looking to tweak it and learn different things so that I could not get stale. I'm constantly worried about being stale creatively. Anytime I feel like I've kind of fallen into some sort of rhythm or habit with my mixes or my templates or anything like that, that's exactly when I buy a new compressor or uh, <laughs> or a, a new plug-in or decide that I'm going to not use API pre's on my drums this time and use Neves or something like right. that. I'm constantly trying to do things differently so I don't make the same record over and over again and 
by proxy, hopefully get better because I, I mm. learn new things and adapt new things. Every record I make, I just want to be more, more creative, better sounding. Yeah, I guess I don't have a set goal. I just, every record I make, I just want to be better. Yeah. Going back early days when you were a much younger man, mm -hmm. where were you uh, raised? I moved around a lot when I was a kid. I'm originally from Syracuse, New York. I lived there until about seven years old. And then we moved to Hartford, Connecticut, and we were only there for about three years. And then we spent time overseas in Paris for two years. As I mentioned, my father was working for United Technologies and they opened a Paris office. We were supposed to be there for five, but we came back after two because something changed in the office. And then my family was set up in a rural town in Ellington, Connecticut, and that's where I graduated high school. And that's where I was playing in bands and recording, specifically my band, but other local bands and figuring out how to get sounds from my parents' basement into a Windows 98 clunky, huge computer. And that's when I figured out I loved this stuff. And it kind of was just, like I said, a, a checkerboard getting to being here in the bridge sound and stage. But that's when I was able to get sounds from a drum set into a computer and figure out that this is what I love. I don't want to even play shows and write, write music anymore. I just want to record. So why did you not take the direct path to a program for recording or getting into a studio earlier? Like, where did the whole cooking thing become a, a choice? So... Like I said, cooking was just something that was always part of my life just growing up. I always helped my mother in the kitchen and like I would cook for my friends when they would come over. But when it came time for me to be a teenager with a job because I needed money to buy guitar related things, it started off with me washing dishes in a pizza restaurant. And then one night the pizza cook just quit in the middle of the shift and they pulled me out of the dish room and put me on the pizza line. And they figured out I could cook. And then it was just, I was streamlined into cooking very fast after that because it was just something that made sense to me. And then it was a very easy way for me to make money. And I worked in restaurants pretty much all through high school. And then before I even graduated high school, I was a line cook in a local pub and tavern. And it was easy. I didn't have to think. I didn't have to do anything. I was able to make a living doing it. And like I did it while I was in college, it became a distraction and decided that when I was first in school, like I wasn't getting what I wanted. I wasn't doing the things I wanted. So I was just going to cook. That was just the easy answer for me and mm. uh, worked at a bunch of different places. Eventually ended up running a kitchen at a very young age. I was unhappy before that, but I always told myself once I had got control of a kitchen, I got to staff it the way I wanted to. I got to design a menu, do those types of things that I would like it then. So I, I, I worked towards that goal and eventually got that opportunity at a fairly young age. And I hated it even more. <laughs> it was the worst. Like it was the worst. And that's not knocking the industry. I still have a lot of the love for the industry and a lot of love for the people that I worked with. Even beyond that, because when I moved to Boston, I needed to pay my rent. I cooked while I was in school. I would take classes during the day and I would literally change into my chef whites like in the bathroom and run to the restaurant and cook at night. Before I moved to Boston and started going back to school, it was just an easy answer for me to make a good living and have a good time. And it got old. Yeah. When did you make the transition where the finances made sense to be a studio person as opposed to a chef? October 18th, 
2011 was the last time I worked in a restaurant. And it was very scary for me because it was something that was a part of my life for almost a decade at that point. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have any sure things at that point. I had already graduated from my program. I was interning at a couple different studios and I was recording people out of my bedroom hip hop artists that I, I would meet and network with, folk artists, like small level things that I could manage to do in a Brighton apartment. And I was unloading trucks for a film production warehouse. And at a certain point, I never really even officially quit. And I really liked this restaurant. And I really liked the chefs that I was working for. At the end of the shift, they, they looked at me because they knew what, what I was doing and like how I was trying to transition out. And they looked at me and they said, can you work this day? I said, no. Can you work this day? I said, no, I have the thing there. And they said, well, why don't you just call us when you figure out your schedule? And I just never called. And I just leaped. I said, I'm going to figure it out. I have a little bit of money. I can pay my rent for the next two months. And I did have some help from my parents just getting started. You know, I had a safety net there, uh, which is I was very fortunate for. But I just leaped. It's funny because right after that shift, the restaurant I was working for was very close to my, my old school. I had studio time penciled in for right after that restaurant shift. And I, I went down and I just tinkered in the studio for the next four hours. I think it was like 2 a.m. before I went back to my apartment. And I said, that's it. Like, I, I don't think I'm, I'm going to do this. Like, at least for now, I'm going to try. I'm not going to like call them back and get the easy paycheck. I'm going to try to freelance more. I'm going to try to do more at the film production house. And that was the last time I ever cooked for money. I still cook for friends and everything like that. Yeah, It's funny too, because there was several times, even years past, this restaurant, because I'm so friendly with them, they would call me to see if I like would pick up a shift because someone would walk out or something like that. And I'd just say no every time. There was a couple of times I thought it might be fun just to like show up and just be like, I'm going to cook for one night. But I just made the hard, fast decision that, that part of my life is done. And we're going to figure it out from there. Yeah. Occasionally I get these calls like, hey, our drummer didn't show up. I'm like, yeah, sorry. I'm not there. I'm not in that game anymore. Sorry. Yeah, It's good. It's nice to be able to just make that decision and move forward and say, this part of my life is done. It's yeah. time to move on to the new thing. So let's talk about the new thing, relatively speaking. It's not exactly mm -hmm. that new anymore. Every day, restaurants are open. People go to those restaurants and they eat. Mm -hmm. COVID complications aside. Yeah. Now, with a studio... It's not always like that. There's not an expectation that somebody is going to show up every single day or book every single day. So it becomes a little bit of a challenge, financially speaking. Mm -hmm. So how have you all managed the bridge in terms of bringing in clients as often as you can? You're talking to me now from the studio, so clearly you've survived COVID up to this point. Yes, we have. What is the strategy to keep a studio like The Bridge booked? We've always put a big emphasis on flexibility. We literally do everything here. Obviously, our hearts are into making music, rock music specifically for me. But uh, my business partner, he's really big into the hip hop scene in Boston. So just by way of having two different factions of genre out in the scene has really netted us the ability to pull in a lot of different genres here. We keep a pretty big house engineer staff. Not everyone is full-time, but we have a lot of different folks who like to work in, in and around this place that go out and bring in their own clients and we feed them clients. But also, even though we want to make music, we do a lot of corporate voiceover stuff too. Like after 
our meeting here today, I have a day full of podcast recordings of myself, just recording podcasts. One is going to be for MIT. The other is for a new company that I've never worked with before. We record a lot of audiobooks. I have developed some friends whom I used to work with in restaurants, literally, who've gone on to do other things. I have specifically one friend who has been really, really helpful. He works for ad agencies, and mm -hmm. uh, he sends a lot of corporate mixing work. Like I just had a very big mixing project for iRobot, uh, another thing for Sally Mae. Those aren't necessarily gigs that you dream about when you're in school and you're micing up a drum kit for the first time. But doing those things from the nine to five really helps keep your schedule filled out. And then rock and roll is made on nights and weekends. Yeah. And the rates one can get from the corporate world, from the iRobots and mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. It's a very different game entirely. Mm -hmm. It's more simplistic. It pays yeah. more. There's not the same dynamics at yeah. all. The way I've always looked at it is if I could have a 50-50 split between rent gigs and passion gigs, I'm doing a pretty good job. That's important to even accept that, to say, yeah. we're going to do this and we're going to do the things we don't really dream about, but we're also yeah. going to do the things that we do dream about. Some people I found sell themselves short or cut themselves off from those opportunities by just saying, well, I only, I only do hip hop or I only do rock and roll. And I just, I, even personally, I put a big emphasis on working with multi-genres, even coming up. I come from a school of like heavy music. I grew up playing in metal bands and thrash metal bands, but I've always had an appreciation for everything around music. Like uh, I was in the high school jazz band. I sang in the high school vocal ensemble. I took music theory courses. I love hip hop music. And that was a big part of me breaking into the scene here in Boston is one of the easiest things to do when you don't have a space to work is record vocals out of your apartment. And uh, <laughs> I, I would go out and network at hip hop events because it's like, I need to make money. I like hip hop. I can record hip hop in my apartment. So I would meet hip hop artists and set them up in my closet with moving blankets and record a mix in my apartment. And that was a really big part of how I was able to pay my rent. But being flexible and doing multiple different things is what has kept me afloat all these years. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. 
There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. At the studio, when you're dealing with corporate clients, do you feel like you have to change anything about your appearance or the studio and how it's presented? Or do you just try to present the same thing to everybody? So I don't present the same thing to everyone, but I don't feel like I'm changing something about myself. Mm -hmm. First of all, from the studio aspect of it, we've really cultivated a really nice environment here where it really toes this line of being very professional, clean, upkept, there's no smoking in here. We don't keep alcohol. Like, it doesn't look like a party when you walk in here. But at the same time, it's very open and inviting and creative. There's instruments on the wall. There's amps that you could plug in and you just turn on. And I think our corporate clients get a kick out of that stuff too, like because they're stuck in these stuffy environments and they show up to this big, nice, clean studio with all these fun toys around there. I think that it can ease some of the corporate aspect of things. And I finished some audiobooks before and the author would be like, hey man, we got like 15 minutes left. Can I plug in a guitar and like, just like <laughs> play some power chords? And I'm like, absolutely, man. Like just, you know, and it makes their day. So I don't feel like I need to present the studio in a different way. I think it just presents well as a whole for whatever you want to do. Personally, I present differently in every session because everyone needs something different. There's a real psychology that comes with doing this, working with artists, authors, creatives, and everybody needs something different. Some people want you to be laid back, fun, joking, really, really nice and bubbly. Other people want you to just shut up and run Pro Tools and then... <laughs> yeah. And not comment. Other people want you to drive them and be like really, really focused on the performances. Like you're out of tune, do this, do that. They, some people need that. So I present differently with every session just because I feel like everyone needs something different. And part of my job is to figure out what kind of personality people need in order to get the best out of their creative experience. You know, it's funny you say that it, as you were talking about that, it made me reflect back on the times where I would do an Uber or a Lyft and mm -hmm. the driver you get, mm -hmm. you know, it was like a crapshoot. It was like, okay, well, I've got the super chatty person now, or I've got the, I'm not going to say a word person. And then every personality in between, and it depends on how you feel. Are you rushed getting to the airport? Oh my God, this guy just won't shut up. I just want to just get to the airport. Managing the personalities that come in is one thing. Managing yourself around those personalities is a whole nother skill set. And that can make or break a session. It really can. The gear is good. The environment's good. But making sure that everyone is comfortable and has the emotional environment that they need in order to be successful really can take a recording to the next level. And I think that's honestly what has been one of my stronger suits in this industry and like keeping clients is just being able to connect with people in the way that they need, whatever that may be. Yeah, it's a really tricky balancing act, I would say.
So let's talk about some completely unsexy stuff. Okay, cool. The logistics of running a studio. Yeah. Tell me about billing. Tell me about calendaring. Tell me about managing different engineers coming in and out. What's the method? It is very unsexy. You're right. And it's we're so always unsexy. trying to figure out like how to manage it better. Uh-huh. We've literally just adopted our calendar just this week, but we do have a studio manager. They are amazing. And I don't know what I would do without them. They're a big help with as far as like client relations, contacting, scheduling, billing. We use Intuit stuff, all the QuickBooks stuff, and there's like online payments and et cetera and all of that. We do have a staff of interns as well who answer the phones throughout the day. So when we're in sessions, engineers aren't available to take phone calls. And that's really just for folks who are cold calls. People who are calling to inquire about the studio for the first time, people who are just you know referred to by a friend and looking to figure out how to book a session. If there's clients whom have worked with me before or any of my other engineers, typically that gets kicked down to like personal contacts. If someone like whom I, I work with regularly, they're just going to shoot me a text message and I throw it in the calendar. But as far as cold call stuff, it goes through our studio manager, our staff of interns, and they pop it in a Google calendar and they invite the engineer and they cross-reference it with engineer availability calendars and make sure that we have someone for that date and time. And then we capture a deposit and then they're off to the races at that point. After that first session, we do our best to keep engineers with the same clients just so that they can build rapports. It's up to the engineer to schedule the next session if necessary, or just take it from there at that point. Also very tricky, hiring a person to do that. Mm -hmm. Yes. Finding a person who can interface with the public Mm -hmm. and handle the dynamics of a studio. How did you find the person you have? So this is the second studio manager that we've had. Well, third. I was the first one. And then once I became one of the owners, I just had too many different irons in the fires between dealing with my own session workload and everything. So we decided we were busy enough that it warranted us to have an administration person to help keep everything good and constantly have an outside lens to how we could operate better. And we exclusively hire from our internship program, we are proud to say. We don't bring out any outside folks, not because we're opposed to it, but we want to reward the folks who intern for us. And we get to know these people and we want them to feel like there is something at the end of this internship. It's not just me scrubbing toilets. It's not just me sitting here and asking questions. If I want to, I could turn this into something. And that's very important to us. It's literally how I got to where I'm sitting as I started off as an intern and now I'm an owner of the studio. So we found this person through our internship program and they're amazing. How do you handle interns that don't work out? They usually just don't stick around. We're pretty lax because it's hard doing an internship. We were all interns at one point. We don't expect everyone to come in here and to be rock stars. Some people just are hitting a course requirement. Other people, it's not exactly what they expected it to be. So we're not like really bent out of shape if it doesn't work out. But the folks who don't really display a drive to make this into a thing usually just don't stick around long because they see they're not getting past the taking out the trash phase. And then all of a sudden they look to their left and the person who started after them is running Pro Tools sessions. What do you think the dark side is to running a studio? The dark side? Is there a dark side that you've identified? 
I don't think so. It's hard what we do, and some days are harder than others. And there's definitely days I go home to my partner and I say to her, I'm like, I'm an imposter. I'm doing this wrong. Like, I shouldn't be doing this. This is, I'm going to go back to the kitchen. You know, like, I never really mean it, but it can be really hard and disappointing. And I've definitely had, even this year, some disappointing projects. But at the end of the day, I still love it and anything that you love is going to be difficult at times. It never really feels dark to me. Like when you say dark, I immediately, the first thing that I associate that was Darth Vader. <laughs> I think of Star Wars, <laughs> like the dark side. But I feel like this is hard sometimes. And especially now in this pandemic, it's been challenging. I'm not going to, you know, candy coat it. It's been hard navigating a small business with staff through a global pandemic. But even throughout all of this, I love it. I do. It's my passion, undoubtedly. And I'm very grateful to be able to do it. Were you all able to get a hold of any uh, PPP loans? Nope. Nope. The government didn't want to help us. We, we applied. We applied for every last one of them oh. in various different hoops. We didn't just didn't qualify for anything. Okay. And you didn't apply as individuals? Nope. Wow. Okay. So it truly was rough. It was rough. And we were fortunate in the sense where we weren't operating check to check at that point. So we were able to chip away at some funds that we had set aside for some build out stuff that we were hoping to do. And we were able to pay our full-time staff members a chunk of a portion of what they would typically make while they were home during the hard parts of things. Mm -hmm. And we did remote work. I mentioned some of the ad stuff and the corporate stuff that I did. I was able to pull off some of that stuff on my laptop in my Somerville apartment. It was definitely a fraction, <laughs> a very small fraction of what we would typically take in as far as sales and income, but it was enough to keep us going until we could get the doors back open in late June of 2020. And then fortunately enough, when we opened back up, it was very restricted. And I'm sure you've heard from other engineers about disinfecting doorknobs and airing out rooms for 24 hours after they've been sung in and air purifiers. We did all of that. But when we opened back up, there was a lot of excitement and a lot of people wanted to do projects here. And I think part of that had to do with definitely our reputation and the environment that we have cultivated here at the bridge. But also there was just a lot of pent up. I want to go out and do something creative. I can't play shows. I can't do this. I'm going to work on the record. And when we opened back up, we had people waiting. You talked about having funds for build out ping everybody. Mm -hmm. How do you structure where all the money goes? I, I wish that we were more organized and like percentages, but we literally just throw it all in an account and just pay our bills and then give it all to our accountant and just say, tell us what to do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. And like when we see things that we need, we buy them and then we look at prices and then we'd be like, okay, we need a new computer for our studio B. What can we afford? This is what we need. This is what we have. This is what we'll get. And we do it very case by case. There's some bigger things that we want to do that we would need to hit a certain financial threshold for as far as adding structures to the building. There's some super long-term stuff about maybe adding another story to the building that's very far in the future. But even smaller, we want to add another isolation booth, things like that. So when we look at our bank account and be like, oh, we had a really, really good year, we can start talking about doing some of these things again. That's when we do the build out stuff. But up until that, it's really just based on what we can afford 
afford to do in the moment and what the studio actually needs. Trailing off that, what what is your financial philosophy in general as an audio professional, knowing what you know now, learning everything that you've learned up to this point about survival, mm-hmm. how do you handle personally? What's what's your thought process on on money as an audio professional? When I first started out, I thought that I constantly needed to buy plugins, gear, like most people. I needed things, I needed toys. I, I bought a lot of microphones over the years and compressors and EQs. And that was even before I owned an actual studio. I would just buy things because I felt like I needed to like do things. I'm spoiled now at this point. I have a lot of toys. <laughs> but like at this point in, my, in this juncture, I, I try to spend money on things that I feel like will immediately give me some sort of jolt, immediately sort of solve an issue that's in front of me. Taking into consideration the uh, retro double wide I just bought, I'm mixing a heavy record right now and I'm using a lot of analog on it, analog gear, and I was not happy with my bass tone. I had some of my typical compressors tied up in some other aspects and I was using some things that I just didn't really care for and I said, I need another compressor right now. What should I get? And I watched videos on what I felt would help the tone that I was going for and I landed on the double wide, but I bought that because I needed it, not just because I wanted it. And especially now, while we're doing better, we're still not doing the numbers that we were in 2019. Just allocating funds to like buying things and toys and gear to try to just keep it to when I feel like something can make an immediate impact, not just something I'm going to stash because it looks cool or fun or pretty or something like that. That's the best way for me to manage what I spend on audio related stuff. Yeah. And then as far as, are you a saver? Are you a spender? Are you planning a retirement situation? I am a saver. I opened up my first Roth IRA this last year. I don't really like love stocks or following that stuff, but my accountant basically strong armed me into doing it because she said that if I don't start doing it now, I'll never do it. So I opened my first Roth IRA And other than that, I have an account where I set aside stuff to pay my taxes at the end of the year. And then I have a savings account for the future. And the future for me is I'm a renter still. I'd love to buy a condo, a place to live. So I'm trying to work towards that. But I am a saver for sure. So I try to save whatever I can based off of whatever I take in. I don't have a certain percentage of when I get a paycheck, like X goes in the tax account. And then after that, this goes in the savings. And then this is what I can spend. I literally just take a check in, put it in my tax fund, and then pay my bills and the rest goes into the savings. And then I just approach like what I need in the moment after that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I feel like finding financial mentors is just as important as finding Mm -hmm. audio mentors. Somebody to just be objective and say, hey, you like doing this, this audio thing? Well, let me show you how to stay doing this. I was fortunate enough as my father is really good with finances and he he instilled saving and making sure that you have enough to fall back on at a very young age. And that was been very important for me, even before I started doing this, just making sure that I had personally had something to fall back on. And it really helped last year in 2020 because there was a good five months. I didn't take a paycheck from the business and uh, I just chipped away at the savings. And lived very frugally. Yep. Well, I mean, fortunately enough, I was stuck at home, so (laughs) there was no nights out eating dinner or going to shows or anything. Right, right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Whereas my family, like we went DoorDash crazy within the first couple months of lockdown and things not operating. And uh, when I saw the bill, I was like, 
hey, uh, we need to cut back on this DoorDash stuff. We need to really cook more at it home. It gets like really that. expensive. It really does. This has been great, Alex. Where can people find out more about you in the studio? TheBridgeSoundStage.com is our website. We have some profiles on there. You find me and some playlists of the work that I've done. I don't have a personal website and I, I don't have a LinkedIn. I've kind of just relied on word of mouth up to this point. So far that's worked. Maybe that'll change someday and I'll make a personal website, but I've really kind of just thrown myself behind the bridge sound stage as far as that goes. So um, if you want to find out more about me, head on over to thebridgesoundstage.com. That'll be in the show notes, audience, as per usual. No, I really appreciate the opportunity to do this. This was fun. Thank you so much. Excellent. Will you take care? Take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Alex Allenson here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Remember, guest suggestions. Go to workingclassaudio.com. There's a form. Fill out that form. And we need those guest suggestions because those are the fuel that helps run this show. And anybody that you want to recommend, I'd greatly appreciate it. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith that badass voice at the beginning of the show connect with me on linkedin and until next time take care hey i know many of you are aware of this but for those of you that aren't aware working class audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called audio life and quite simply put it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.